From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Parental leave is a great time to, like, rewatch your random... Star Trek. There are a couple of challenges to that plan, hmm. but we can we can go through that on another episode of the weeds. I'm just I'm saying parental leave. That's your that's your Deep Space Nine rewatch opportunity. Perfect. All right, we should podcast. Let's make a podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston and Dara Lind. Uh, Dara and I were on vacation last week, and... Uh, Apparently I, some stuff happened. I came back, and I, I, I was, I, I'm genuinely confused. So there are children in detention in what appear to be very poor conditions, and a lot of stories about it. Yes, and I like what, <laughs> right? So what? Like um, what? What? Ha- so this is not the child separation. Not right. Right. This is the ongoing general phenomenon of families and child groups arrive at the border. Yeah. We podcasted about this many times. Right. Most recently in the tariff context. But then, like, what? God, tariffs, how? Man. How that did this? Like, where did this story come from? What? What right. happened? So. As uh, regular consumers of policy news might be aware of, there's a special legal agreement. Uh, It's basically like, think of it as kind of analogous to a consent decree in Mm -hmm. which the judicial branch is taking an active role in overseeing the actions of the executive branch. And it's, it's called the Flores Agreement, and it deals specifically with the treatment of children in immigration detention. And like, it goes back to the 90s. In theory, it was supposed to be just a placeholder for like, this is something that the government should have either a law or a regulation about. And then the government didn't put together either a law or regulation because it had the kludge that was this agreement. And they were like, we'll just continue to comply with Flores. That's fine. Um, you know, the Trump administration is now trying to write that regulation. But like that's kind of a sidebar for the story. Uh, as part of that, a group of kind of legal investigators, like some lawyers, some human rights advocates, were doing some monitoring of the conditions at centers that are run by Border Patrol. Now, quick run through for those who have forgotten or who, like me, were in Europe for two weeks and weren't thinking about any of this. Um, 
when you come into the U.S., if you're crossing between ports of entry, you get apprehended by Border Patrol. Uh, if you're a child who isn't with your parent or legal guardian, or if you're separated for, you know, there are still some parent-child separations going on, but it's like 700 over the course of a year as opposed to like 3,000 over the course of six weeks. So like it's it's not it's not most of the kids who are in custody. And you're then only supposed to be in Border Patrol custody for 72 hours, barring extreme emergency circumstances. You're supposed to be sent to Health and Human Services. Like the logic of this is that kids shouldn't be in immigration detention for any longer than absolutely necessary, that they need to be in the care of like child welfare professionals. So as part of the general like overwhelmedness of the border intake system with the current number of families and children coming in, that amount of time in custody has just been expanding. It's like it's not totally clear how many kids are actually getting out of there in 72 hours, but it's probably very few. And at any given time, about 2,000 kids are in the custody of Border Patrol. Like in context, Border Patrol said last month that in general, they consider 4,000 people in custody at any given time to be high. And they now have like 16,000 people, 2,000 of whom are children who are there without, like who are in separate facilities without parents, uh, often have come with like aunts or older, even older siblings and are deemed to be unaccompanied because the law says has to be a parent or legal guardian. Um, but that's not a great situation. Like, that is not a thing Border Patrol is supposed to be doing. Everyone so agrees so when that. you hear about, like, a two-year-old, like a baby yes. in immigration detention, yes, this is not someone who has been, typically, this is not someone who has been separated from their parents right. under the previously and now abandoned separation policy. Exactly. But they're also, I, I mean, common sense is that unaccompanied two-year-olds are not materializing at the U.S.-Mexico border. Yes. So, I mean, they're has, actually like this, this, has this actually them. was more like, uh, yes, somebody has accompanied them, whether that somebody is just like you have a group of teenagers with a smuggler. Right. Um, or whether it's like actually someone who knows the child is kind of you know, I think is is a key difference between now and what was happening in 2014. Well, I mean, when teenagers had a lot of one thing, though. I mean, yeah, I, just yeah. you hear reports about really little. You, kids. you do. I think it's generally it, the average age of kids is decreasing some, but like it is important to remember that it's not like the overwhelming majority of these are infants. Sure. Uh, there's a pretty good spread, but like, but yeah, it's it is often the case that it's either you know an aunt or an uncle. And they're coming because the parents sent the kid with them. They're coming because the parents already live in the United States and they're bringing the kid. They're coming because they are in practice the child's guardian and they just don't have the paperwork to prove it. Or and like this is one of the many areas where is the is the Trump administration simply not able to do the best job it can or are deliberate punitive decisions being made. This is one of the things where this comes into play like. I've definitely heard lawyers express skepticism that in cases where people do have papers saying that they should be the legal guardian of this kid, that like those are being treated as OK by Border Patrol agents. Like that is kind of one of the many small like what's really going on here questions that we still don't have resolved. So like that's how those kids are getting into custody. And they're I wouldn't say languishing there. They're not there indefinitely. And I think that's important to note. It's just that they're there longer than the Flores Agreement says they're supposed to be. And that raises questions about, like, is Border Patrol equipped to take care of these kids? So that's what this fact-finding mission was about. There have, like, been questions about conditions of kids in Border Patrol and ICE custody. So this team of investigators went and, like, under normal circumstances over the course of litigation, you'd, like, 
you do this, you'd like file a report to the judge. If it was p- particularly egregious, you'd file some kind of motion to get the judge to like stop the government from holding kids in this facility. This team was so alarmed by what they saw, especially in one facility in Texas called the Clint facility, uh, that they went to the press about it. They went to the AP first and then did a bunch of media tours about essentially what they saw. And some of the stories that they have are they're not at all how anyone would expect children to you know, like to to be treated, right? There's one story that one of the monitors told about, like, at one point there was a lice outbreak and all of the kids who didn't have lice were told to comb their hair with, like, there were two lice combs for the 300 kids in the facility. And they lost one one of the lice combs. And, like, all of the kids were punished by the guards as collective punishment for losing a lice, lice comb. Like, it's just, you know, there weren't toothbrushes. There aren't, there isn't enough food. People aren't able to shower routinely. There's it's the kind of thing that is as terrible as American prison conditions can be. It's not something we associate with American prisons. It's certainly not something that like anyone would associate with like treatment of children. And so the alarm around that is kind of what's generated the last few days of news coverage. Now, it's important to note here that like the government's response has been to close that particular facility down, essentially. Um, most of the kids have been sent actually to HHS custody, finally. Uh, others have been sent to other Border Patrol facilities. But, like, none of the problems that were identified were specific to that one facility. Like, it's not clear to me how you get more toothbrushes by shutting down the the facility where they noticed the lack of toothbrushes. And, like, in fact, I've actually talked to one of the people who was on the investigating uh trip who visited one of the places where they're now sending kids out of Clinton. She's like, it's not better. There aren't toothbrushes there either. They still don't have blankets. Like, this is a systemic problem. It's just that the Trump administration has, and, you know, we'll see whether this is successful or not, um, taken the obvious narrative arc of, oh, if the pro- if people are focusing on how bad this facility is, we're going to shut down this facility and see if attention goes away. So I want to get to kind of what the political response has been, because I think that that's been a lot of what you guys missed over your, yeah. your fun vacations. But I, I think that there are a lot of actual questions here because the response that you see um, from conservatives or kind of Trump supportive conservatives on this particular issue is, OK, these facilities are bad. These facilities have, one, been bad since 2014 under the Obama administration, which is one of the arguments. Dara just made a a dubious face. face. Yeah, I mean, I just, like, as long as I'm on mic, like, these facilities didn't exist in 2014 is the thing, right? Like, it's really hard to overstate the extent to which what we're seeing right now is an improvised response to a phenomenon that is, like, a year or less old. So, yes, there definitely were questions about facilities in 2014, but, like, the kind of archipelago of, you know, we're springing up these soft-sided facilities and, like, kids are there for, you know, days and days and days. Like, it was the case during the very, very peak of the 2014 crisis, but, like, it was that was a few weeks. We're talking about now months. So I think the second part of the question is that, you know, if you, the Thomas Cotton and uh, Dan's Crenshaw of yes. the world have responded by saying, like, hey, we have this legislation that would increase funding mm-hmm. for these sites 
why are Democrats not or not not Democrats writ large, but like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others of the kind of more left leaning Democrats? Why are they opposed to sending funding to make these facilities presumably have more than one lice comb? Yeah, I mean, one would hope. right. Like this, this is happening in the context of like the administration asked for a supplemental funding package back in, I guess, the beginning of May, because right. it was like, we are going to run out of money at the border before the end of the fiscal year. You need to give us more money or else like disastrous things will happen. And for a while, it kind of seemed like there just wasn't a lot of interest in it. Um And finally, I think both chambers of Congress got the message that, like, the end of the fiscal year is coming. Like, DHS did get, you know, their last funding bill came in February, but HHS hasn't been funded since September. Like, that's a problem for the shelters for immigrant kids. There definitely has been some momentum on this. Of course, it then got scrambled with the whole, like, Trump tweeting out plans for a raid and then taking them back and that's definitely complicated the politics of this but like you definitely do see on the one hand the and I d- I think it is a legitimate partisan split right like republicans are pushing a bill that does what the administration wants not only on funding but also on policy changes and they're going well why don't if democrats are so worried why don't they come to the table and pass this bill that we know the president will sign meanwhile there is an intra-democratic split between the appropriators in leadership who are saying this is a problem that we need to solve by putting more money to improve conditions and a group of progressives that are saying any money we give is endorsing the idea that kids should be in detention. There is no moral way that we can collaborate with this. Okay, but so, so it's, a, it's a threefold split, right? So right. on one hand, you have Republicans saying, hey, Democrats, if you want money to improve these conditions, you should also sign on for this whole raft of other policy changes. Right. Right. And then you have Democratic leadership, which is saying, let's appropriate money to improve these facilities. And then you have AOC and her merry band who are trying to push the idea that there should be no funding right. for and child like, this detentions. This is much more of a discourse split than a vote split. Like, we did see something similar in February, right, where like there was a letter signed by like the vocal house progressives saying, we can't believe that we're about to pass a bill that is going to give more money to ICE to detain people. Right. And like, it did not have trouble passing. Well, okay, but so here's this is this is like boring Congress stuff, right? Yeah. But okay, so there's one universe in which the AOC objections, this stuff like doesn't matter, mm-hmm. right? Because for a bill to become law, it needs to pass the House and the Senate and be signed by Donald Trump. So anything that is capable of passing the Senate and being signed by Donald Trump right. will receive plenty of Republican votes. And it just for Democrats in the House, right? So in a hype, if Nancy Pelosi gets her way, it would be because Republicans agree to do what Nancy Pelosi wants to do and put more money into this system. In that case, it becomes a free vote for backbench Democrats. Yeah. And if they want to take a stand on principle and vote no, that's fine. That's what AOC will do. But And if they don't, it's also fine. Yeah, but I mean, I think- there's, there's like a, a, a messaging thing where like what congressional leaders like to do in these divided control things is pass a bill out of the house that they control yeah, and then sort of like say, well, we've done our job. Right. Now it's Mitch McConnell's problem. And in that case, right, it does matter 
because House Republicans aren't going to vote for a clean appropriation, like, like a clean humanitarian appropriation. But Democrats could pass one on a party line vote, right? And then say, we have a solution to this horrific humanitarian crisis. Now we need Mitch McConnell to right. act on it, right? But they have trouble getting that done if left-wing Democrats are saying, like, not one dime for child detention. So that's like... I think, this, I think there, like really, Congress there also is, even with if there weren't any people with actual votes in Congress who were saying this is unacceptable, the distrust of the administration among the Democratic base runs so deep at this point that it is very, very, very hard to argue anything but they are deliberately doing this because they're evil, terrible people. Like, if you're going to be giving more money to the system, it is you are saying that at least some of that money is going to be spent in good faith, that there are like some people there who are trying to do their best by these kids. And like that is really not something that people are willing to endorse. It appears to be difficult to argue, oh, it's OK, we're putting legal restrictions on how this money will be spent because the distrust that the administration is going to follow the law is so deep. Democratic leadership is in a legit messaging bind here where they firmly believe that they're doing the right thing, that not giving money would be like participating in a humanitarian crisis. But in order to argue that, they have to say the administration that we're saying is putting kids in these terrible conditions, we're going to give them more money and hope that they spend it the right way. Yeah, I, I want to take a break and then talk about some of the evidence we have on this. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE.com.
So toothbrushes are not the most important thing in the world, but they seem to me to be a telling signpost about this situation because there's no national shortage of toothbrushes in America, right? You can go to the store, the shelves are full of toothbrushes, and I think it's really clear that if Donald Trump or Secretary McAleenan or anybody else was like, hey, we need somebody to mail us like a box of toothbrushes to this facility, that like people would do it. In fact, right? uh, Texas Tribune is reporting that people are buying, like trying to show up at facilities with like diapers and things like that and getting turned away for reasons that I'm sure, like I'm sure that there are a lot of bylaws that regulate what right, goes exactly. into these like, facilities. This is, this is a really, really good example of this, right? Like I don't know and you know, I kind of had to write around it in the piece that's probably going to get published between when this tapes and when this is when this podcast is released. Like, I genuinely don't know if the problem here is the guy at the Border Patrol station was a dick and said, we don't need your stinking diapers and toothbrushes. Or if it is like, look, this is a facility in which set in which vulnerable children are held. We can't just take anything from right. anybody who comes in. Well, but I, I, I want to point fingers a little bit more clearly here, right? Like, there is a reason why the government has, like, a hierarchical structure with leaders at the top, right? And, like, if it is the case that President Trump and Chief of Staff Mulvaney and Secretary McAleenan and whoever the fuck is running Customs and Border Patrol, right, like, if they would like these children to have toothbrushes and soap and diapers— but they are facing some kind of practical logistical impediment to that, it is their responsibility to communicate clearly with the public as to what the problem is, simply because we know it is just not conceivable, right, that an objective deficit of toothbrushes in the United States of America is the problem, right? Like, I will give money. People are trying to drive cars full of like it would be a trivial problem to get the box of toothbrushes. Now, admittedly, you can see all kinds of reasons why if you just show up with a pickup truck full of what you purport to be toothbrushes and diapers and want to drop them off at a secure facility, that people are going to maybe turn you away. Right. But we're now we're deep into this story. Right. We're not like 90 minutes into this confusion about it. Yeah, but and we have not, not like. I don't know. I, I also think I think the converse argument is if you're in that kind of position, you should be doing that like you should be fixing the problem of having there not be toothbrushes, not telling not, sure. not making excuses to the public. But, about but, why but, there but are I mean, if, if but if if the problem is a funding shortfall, right, like because there's there's one universe in which they are sweating it. They're like, oh, this is bad, guys. Like, we don't have any toothbrushes. We got to find a way to get toothbrushes. Ugh, Congress is gridlocked because of this policy dispute. But the good news is, like, American civil society would like to deliver toothbrushes. So we need to figure it out. And then there's another world, which this appears to me to be the world that we are in, right, which is that they want to use the humanitarian crisis, which is real, as leverage to get congressional votes for policy changes. So they are not in the most cartoonishly villainous version of this, like eager to see human suffering or something like that. But as often happens in politics, they like 
you have a group that doesn't want to solve the problem that almost everyone agrees is problematic because it's a it's a pressure point. Right. And like that's why Tom Cotton and Dan Crenshaw are out there saying you should pass our bill. Right. And if you had a mass mobilization to deliver soap and, and diapers and, you know, bottles of water and, and do whatever, that would alleviate the pressure point. And it, it seems like they don't want to do that. Like that's why the president who like speaks his mind all the time is like not saying anything about what's going on. I think that there is a reason that their public statements are generally focused on we can't just throw money at the problem. We need to stop the flow. Right. You know, that is legit. I think that in this particular case, like it logically cannot be true that they were using the Clint facility, that they want to use the Clint facility as a pressure point because like they weren't the ones. This isn't like the uh, the people being held under a bridge in El Paso earlier this year where Uh like it was they're like. Border Patrol, which usually tries to stop journalists from like any, you know, t- from talking to migrants who are being held or from any like photos or anything, was like, yes, please take photos. Like that was something where they clearly wanted public sure. attention to be on just how bad the crunch was. This wasn't that. This was people like essentially going whistleblower right. fr- uh, from having done this fact finding trip. So like it's not, you know, I I, I want to make sure that people aren't like I think that that's important when we assess what their reaction to this like would be expected to be that, like, they weren't trying to put it out there. I think the – I, like, want to commit some boring bureaucratic logistics stuff here because I think that that's really what we're talking about, right? Like, it would be very easy for – like, I think that you focused on toothbrushes. Other people focus on, you know, the, like, the shower stuff. Other people focus on the stories of, like, guards being aggressive. Other people focus on the fact that kids are being held in detention at all. And so if you were in a room with, like – Carla Provost, the head of Border Patrol, and Kevin McAleenan, and you said, okay, tell me about the toothbrushes thing, maybe you would get an answer to that. But, like, that is not actually what the public discourse is about. It's about a lot of different things at once. Um, But insofar as we're kind of talking about the toothbrush thing, like, the big problem that they are trying to solve at the level of care of children right now is preventing another kid from dying in custody. You know, they like they really did change um, intake policies after the deaths of Jacqueline Call McKean and Felipe Gomez Alonso in December. And that is kind of like it is kind of widely known that that is what keeps leadership there up at night. And so in order to do that, yes, there's definitely a concern about like infectious diseases and like giving kids good sanitation and that kind of thing. But like you can't necessarily build showers very quickly. What you can do is make sure people are on call when kids have to go to the hospital. And like I don't have numbers on hand, but border agent, you know, people speaking to press during various calls over the last several months have explained like just how many of their agents at any given time are like either transiting kids to and from the hospital or, you know, waiting there while kids are checked up on. And like, it's very difficult because you can't just say, oh, I'm sorry, you have to wait until we have three more kids because it's not useful for us to spend one agent on one kid. We don't have a one-to-one agent-to-kid ratio. Like, you can't do that. What if it's urgent? What if, you know, so on one level, it is it does itself speak to the conditions of facilities, also the conditions that people are coming with. Um, that they have to spend so much energy on this. But, like, I think that there are real manpower questions of, like, you know, I was hearing years ago from somebody who at an adult Border Patrol facility that, like, you know, you 
have to take someone statutorily, you're supposed to take someone every 24 hours to a shower. They didn't have any showers at that facility. So like that's one of the, you know, handful of dudes you have on shift who has to go drive the person to the next facility, which is an hour away, have them take a shower and come back. Like the fundamental situation here is that Border Patrol is not staffed for this, both that the, they don't have the manpower and the they're trained to be law enforcement agents. They're trained in a punitive, hostile, like, I don't, this is pure, pure, pure speculation. But like the thing about the toothbrushes is also interesting to me because toothbrushes can be a controlled right. uh, item in prisons yeah. because you can theoretically sharpen the ends of them. Right. And while I have literally no evidence for this, it would not surprise me if at some point a Border Patrol agent said, we need to find a way to get kids' teeth cleaned without giving 17-year-olds things that could be used as weapons against us because that's the mentality of a law enforcement agent. Right. They're not trained as, like, humanitarian social service workers. And, like, this is kind of bracketing the whole labor management relations question of, like, we know that the head of the Border Patrol Union has Trump's ear. If the Border Patrol Union thinks that they're doing spending too much time taking care of kids and not enough time getting bad guys, like— yeah. That creates some problems. So I genuinely don't know. I don't think I would not be comfortable saying that they are doing everything that can be done. I, I simply don't know the answer to that. I think there are really big questions in particular about um, whether about what's happening to adults, because obviously the more resources being spent to detain adults, the less resources you have on kids. And they do appear to have made the decision that, you know, for kind of top line border security reasons, they do not want it to be possible for a single adult to get released into the U.S. pending you know, pending hearing, deportation yeah. or single adults are often, yeah, removed without hearings. But yeah, it, they don't. And therefore, they want to be detaining people. So, you know, I think that there really are questions about, like, what is being prioritized and what decisions are being made. But if we wanted to have a boring logistical conversation about, like, how do you get toothbrushes to facilities, I am confident that that could happen. It's just that, like, that's not really what a lot of people who aren't listeners to this podcast are worried about. Right. I think yeah. there is something to be said for that. Like, I don't want to really get into the the terminological debate of, like, concentration camps. Um, but I think that that speaks to the kind of what is going on here isn't really a reaction to the existing laws about how unaccompanied kids are treated. Like, if that were the case, we would actually see a much bigger push for, for example, changing the law so that right. if you, the aunt was coming with the niece, then, like, the aunt and the niece could stay together, that kind of thing. What we're seeing is a an elemental horror at the idea that children in particular should be in government custody when the government in question is something that is trusted so little. And, like— right. I don't know. Like, it is generally over the last several years, the panic has has kind of oscillated multiple times from a panic that people are that kids are getting let go to like shady people too easily with not enough vetting and a panic that the government is holding kids back from their families in the U.S. And like right now, we're very much at the right side of that where people are like there are families in the U.S. Why aren't they just being released to them? Um, this is generally a hard question. It seems a much easier question if your level of trust in government is so low that you think basically anybody else would be a better caretaker for these children. Whoa. And that's kind of where I think a lot of the, you know, I think a lot of the free the children rhetoric comes from the fundamental lack of trust that the administration can be, like, is to be believed when it says it wants to take care of kids. Right. Which I think is one of those moments in which we're having you know, we've talked on this podcast before about how the Trump administration and Donald Trump are often, you know, 
logistically two separate things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in court, there's been kind of a lot of conversation about how things Trump says should be considered when it comes to the administration. But on this particular issue, there, I think for most people observing it, there is no separation. Yeah. You know, if you have yep. the same president who referred to, um, you know, undocumented people from Mexico coming across the border as being like rapists and murderers, and then the same administration with his name on it right. is holding children in detention facilities, I think the benefit of the doubt is not going to be given. <laughs> yes. And I think, I mean, it's pretty easy to understand why. And I think that, that that's been something that's been kind of, you know, interesting observing kind of how conservatives have been reacting to this with this level of just like, you know, how could you say this about our proud, you know, Border Patrol officers when for most people it's Border Patrol in administration that is run by Donald Trump. Like it's not difficult to make the rhetorical leap that people are making. I, you know, I understand that for actually fixing the problem, it's not helpful, but it's one that makes sense. I, I also think, you know, if you... If, Dedicated weeds completionists uh, will have heard uh, my, my interview with uh, Adriana Beltran and I, I, dedicated I, I, weeds completionists or anyone who listened to the last episode of the weeds. Uh, what was this? No, yes. oh, yeah. I, I, but it was um, it was really striking to me the situation she was describing in Guatemala, where the Trump administration essentially traded away. Uh, international anti-corruption effort mm -hmm. in exchange for Guatemala moving its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which which in turn is a political favor to Bibi Netanyahu, who in turn repays political favors to Donald Trump. It's just a sign of the level of seriousness with which the the situation is being taken, right? That if I was to characterize, like, what is the substantive policy issue that Donald Trump cares most about, right? It's some balance between this migration from Central America and bilateral trade deficits, yeah. right? Those seem like the two things that he cares about. But even on one of the two things that he cares about, he traded away something that had pretty broad consensus in the United States as like a reasonable helpful effort in exchange for like nothing, like like really like nonsense politics stuff. And that, I, not just the stray remarks that Trump makes, right, but the actual yeah. policy making makes it hard to credit that like the leadership of the United States of America is sweating it as they deal with a tough problem. And like, I will admit, right, that there is there is a level of double standard to this. But when conservatives tell me like, oh, there were like reports of inhumane conditions when Obama was president and, and blah, 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 like th that is all true. And it is true that liberals were not as fired up back then. And it's true that like I personally was not as fired up back then. And the reason is that I thought the Obama administration was trying to wrestle with a difficult problem, and I don't think the Trump administration is, you know? like See, yeah, they, I, they I don't... would have loved to have had this conversation in 2014 because what surprised me in 2014 was just how aggressively the Obama administration in court was fighting oversight under the Flores settlement. Um, but they lost that battle, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they— it, the stance coming out of that battle was the executive branch should not be trusted to have the best interests or like or like it it 
whether or not it has the best interests at heart, it should not be trusted to make decisions that are going to lead to these children getting minimal care. And like that's kind of where we start from here is the fact that there is an active role that the judicial branch has taken. And so like treating the Obama and Trump administrations in kind of as snow globes where like, you know, you like somebody shakes the snow globe and then it falls. And like, okay, depending on who's shaking the snow globe, it's going to fall which way. Um, This may only make sense to people who shook snow globes upside down to watch the snow fall up. But anyway, for like all five of us out there, um, it's not like there are other the not only are the kind of circumstances different, but like there already is a more active role for other branches. And so for ar- arguing for that role should be lessened because other administrations were also bad just logically is not right. Anyway, we should we should quit and talk about uh, how the workers lost the class war, which is how Matt explained this white paper to me. Yes. There we go. All right. Take a break. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way... That, that Israel should be able to participate in Europe. Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. All right, there's a lot of math in this one, and I'm not going to pretend uh, to have actually done it. But the top lines are good. So this is how the wealth was won, factor shares as market fundamentals. Uh, Daniel Greenwald, Martin Letow, and Sidney C. Ludwigson. Um, so the question that they are asking, right, is if you look at the stock market, uh, it has gone up a lot. Uh, you know, not not just like over the past two years or something, but over decades, right? The value of the stock market has gone up a lot. Um, And one reason the stock market has gone up is that the economy has grown a lot since the late 1940s. But then if you look at the timing, right, it doesn't quite add up. Like growth has been slower since 1980 than it was pre-1970. But the stock market has done really, really well since 1980. And there's always been just kind of questions about like why that is, right? And there's a lot of kind of possible reasons why the stock market could do better than the overall real economy. And what they do with their complicated math and their um, sort of smart use of new data sources is they show that most of those complicated reasons are not that big of a deal. That changes in interest rates have played a factor, that changes in sort of the risk environment have played a factor, uh, but that the majority of it has just been that, um, how do they tell us? It's a reallocation of rents to shareholders in a decelerating economy, uh, which is to say that 
uh, as the pie has grown more slowly, shareholders have managed to grab a larger and larger share of the pie. And they have been so successful at grabbing a larger share of the pie that even though growth has slowed down, shareholders have done better in the slow growth era than they did in the fast growth era. Um, so they show that in the fast growth era, almost all of stock market appreciation, 94%, was due to growth in the economy. Um, but that the stock market overall has done better since the big slowdown uh, because of this uh, reallocation of rent, which is like basically, I don't know, it's like the bosses got more money and the workers got less. Um, so it, it turns out Rage Against the Machine was just really prescient the whole time. Yeah, they were just like four or five years into this trend. It's true. Um, I have some dumb questions. Coming. And I know that like literally I have asked this question on the podcast and you have explained it to me before. But like, can you clarify a little bit the relationship between like, like who owns the wealth in the stock market? Because it's kind of it's one of those things that like the financial press will tell you that it is like, you know, that the middle class, broadly speaking, which everyone literally thinks they are in is in yeah. has a stock portfolio. And then like this appears you are you are strongly implying that that is not the case. Yeah, I mean, so to make their model work, which is very complicated as it is already, you've got like little triangles, subscript C, T plus one, little squiggly E thing. You know, there's this all kinds of stuff going on. So to simplify it, they posit that like the workers and the owners are two entirely separate groups of people, um, which is obviously not true. Um, right, especially in an era where like, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't, aren't stock options like one of the ways that employers have tried to like make compensation imp look like it's improving while not imp increasing wages? Well, but so here, here's the thing, right? It turns out that, well, it's not literally true that workers and owners are completely distinct groups of people, that 10% of the population owns 80% of the stock market and 50% of the population owns 0% mm -hmm. of the stock market. So there is a little bit of immediate illusion in which the, the 50th to 90th percentile is like very it includes like almost everyone who like writes and edits content right Inter -alia, yeah you know so it's like people who are affluent enough to own a non-zero quantity of stock but who when you set your household budget you are primarily thinking about your salary right, right you're right. not you're not anticipating like that dividends Investment income. that right. like dividends are going to make you buy a car or something, right? Um, that's like, it seems like normal people because we inhabit a social sphere in which most people are like that. Um, and But it's it's not typical, right? No. Like the typical person owns no or almost no stock. Right. And the typical shareholder is like a very wealthy person. And in the top, I, I think it's the top 0.01%, the top 0.1%, like the majority of income becomes investment income. And then haters get me because I know there's this well-known paper, Capitalists in the 21st Century, that quibbles a little bit with this, but I, I set that aside. Um, so- they're saying it's it's at least approximately true that a group of owners who are like, you can think of it as 5 to 10% of the population, are getting all this money. And then a group of workers uh, are, are losing out. Um, right. And this seems especially relevant when, at the firm level, companies are making decisions based on like are making decisions about inter alia compensation based on what they think is going to happen at the stock price, right? Yeah. 
Well, and I think what's really, I mean, there's two things that are really interesting about this, right? One is that in a lot of sort of textbooky models, if the value of stock goes up, that should drive a lot of extra investment. And the new investment should increase employment and wages, right? So like in the long run, you shouldn't have this detachment, even though in the, in the short run you might. But in the long run, it's all supposed to sort of come back around. But it evidently has not come back around. And like since 1989 is like a pretty long run. Um, the other thing is that it's just really common to look at the stock market as a kind of daily referendum on economic affairs. And then people always say like, well, you know, lots of things can impact stock prices. It's not exactly the same as the real economy. But there's just always a question of like, you know, nothing's perfect in life. But it seems like at least a, a useful proxy. And like what they're saying here is that over, you know, medium-term durations, five years, ten years, it really isn't a useful proxy, that it has been much better time for the stock market in a period of declining growth because these sort of other factors that you could brush aside as details are actually a really big deal. And I think that that's something, um, you know, I talk to conservatives for my job, and that's been something that's been an interesting point of conflict among conservatives is that, you know, kind of the populist wing is starting to make this point of like, kind of so sounding vaguely Elizabeth Warren-ian and saying that, like, yes, the stock market is doing great. That means markedly nothing for the majority of Americans, which is a point that people have been making for a long time. And it's it, it's interesting also because it's something you kind of heard from not from Trump and kind of the Trump milieu in 2016, where you know the idea of using the stock market as kind of part and parcel, this is how the economy is doing, was knocked down. And now you're seeing Trump tweeting about how like the stock market's doing great, ergo, everything is fine, which is I think it's an easy position to have. Though, one, no one knows what makes the stock market do anything. It is very panicky. It is like a pigeon that I don't want to be near or understand. But two, it doesn't It doesn't necessarily – it doesn't, as you said, impact what most people – and I include them, you know, my parents, my family, the vast majority of people I went to high school with. It does not impact their lives. Right. And even when, like, the stock market – you know, the the relationship between politics and the stock market also yeah. goes the other way, right? right? Where like the I think we've seen over the last few years some cases where like it looks like Trump is about to do something protectionist on trade and like the threat rises and the threat rises and the threat rises and the stock market doesn't react. And then all of a sudden some incremental thing happens and a lot of people on Wall Street appear to collectively decide that this time the threat is real and there's this big sell-off. Right. Like, it's not exactly like the people who are making, you know, the the stock market, like everything else, is made of people. And the people making those decisions don't – not not only don't share the interests, like, of kind of Americans as a whole. Right. But – are often making their decisions based on inputs that are just how do I think things are going to go, not necessarily like drawing on a broader array of inputs. And so it's this weird like it can be hermetically sealed yeah. in a way that is great if you're trying to conserve wealth and the power of the, you know, shareholding class and not so good if you're seeing it as a referendum on like are things actually going okay? And, and I think this is important to the, you know, Jane, you, you reference this, the sort of like conservative populist right. discourse because, you know, a question that I think has like ricocheted through uh, political 
political economy commentary of, of all stripes for years is like, how real is class conflict? Right. Because like there's an extent to which obviously if you took somebody else's money, you would have more money. And there's also an extent to which like the society is a cooperative enterprise and we can all be better off. Right. right? And Trump, you know, leans very heavily on zero sum type rhetoric. And as a candidate, he had a variety of different zero sum postures, right? I mean, the working class versus the elite, but Mm -hmm. also Americans versus foreigners, you know, blah, 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 blah. As president, he has really narrowed that focus Mm -hmm. to like Americans versus foreigners. Right. And he talks about like he he cheerleads for the stock market and he complains about the Fed when it goes down. And this paper is, you know, it's making case for a more classical class politics and raising the tensions between like a Tucker Carlson style approach to this and the reality of Trump's governance. Right. Trump's tweets about the stock market are not like the most important things about the Trump administration, but I think it's like a really good signpost for like how has Trump in practice differed. I mean, I think it also is interesting because if you remember in the, you know, thousands of years ago, early 2017, Uh, when every time Trump tweeted about a company, like when uh, Nordstrom stopped carrying Ivanka Trump's something or another, like stocks would be impacted because the people who run the stock market would see that Trump said something mean about a company and they'd be like, Oh no! And then they yeah, do whatever. Been, they've oscillated between undersensitivity and oversensitivity and now, to the uh, caprice of Donald Trump. I think. Right. Which I think that that if the stock market can be impacted by people reading tweets, I yeah, think no, that that yeah. that's that's a it's a strange world over there. Yeah, I mean that that's an interesting one, like the impact on individual stocks, right? But I mean, I think the big. The biggest kind of message here, it's just an interesting couple of stories I saw via Sam Bell's Twitter feed uh, where he's been sort of collecting like full employment uh, cheer stories. Um, You know, and there were like a a couple about how with the unemployment rate being so low, like there's a guy who needed a new manager for a sandwich shop and the guy he wanted to hire was like, you know, I, I take care of my kids on like Fridays, so I can't work then. And the owner was like, okay. I'll take the Friday shifts, right? That you are now in a situation for the first time, really, in the 21st century where people who own businesses, like successful businesses, just still have to sweat obtaining adequate workers, right? And that's because we have finally, 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 finally let the unemployment rate get low. Right. And that's not necessarily a bullish sign for the stock market going forward. Right. That it's good for like it's good for people. Um, And it's not bad for the economy to have the unemployment rate below, obviously. Like, I think it would be crazy to say it's bad, but it's like probably not great news for profits. Right. That if they could ease it off, get back to four or four and a half percent, that would be a more comfortable situation for shareholders than the current one now, where if you have growth opportunities, if you think you could sell more stuff, but to sell more stuff, you're going to need to hire 200 more people. Like, that's now a, a difficult proposition in a good way. All right. All right. That's another episode of The Weeds. Uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeff Geld. And The Weeds will return on Friday.
more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.